So in the, stru- in the um, instructions this morning, um, I'm going to talk about how the practice of meditation, not only this particular form that we're teaching here, but I think all, all meditative uh, practices are or can be understood as the practice of the Buddha's first task, which is that of embracing life. I think there's a tendency in our culture, and it may not just be in the West, I think we can see this exhibited also in the history of Buddhism, that meditation practice very often starts to be thought of or as um, the practice of a particular technique, a technique in which we can become proficient, a technique that has um, certain clear and explicit goals, and very often a technique that is devised as a means of solving problems. In our technological world, um, this is so natural a way of thinking that we often fail to notice it. And so we don't think twice when um, we discuss techniques of meditation. We're probably not even aware, consciously, of the connection between the word technique and technology. I'm not going to go into that in any more detail right now, but just to flag that point and to note how we might be unconsciously thinking of meditation practice as a means to solve a problem. And when this is framed in Buddhist, in Buddha speak, the problem is the problem of suffering. Meditation, mindfulness, whatever it might be, is thought of as a technique to solve the problem of suffering. And if we get it right, we don't suffer anymore. Sounds great. But I would like to look at it from a rather different perspective. One that I sense goes back to the the earliest sources that we have in the Buddhist tradition, but one that might not always fit too comfortably with much of what is presented as Buddhist meditation uh, today. So instead of thinking of meditation as becoming uh, proficient at doing a certain exercise, for example, learning to remain for longer and longer without distraction on the breath, or whatever particular object you choose, and judging your success, in inverted commas, in the length at which you can stay focused without getting distracted. But rather to think of the practice of meditation as the cultivation of a sensibility to the whole of one's life. And not just in a sort of vague, abstract, general way, but in this moment, in each sitting, in each walking. When we pay attention, 
we might have as our explicit object the breath, but we must be careful not to become uh, overly preoccupied with that object, but rather to understand that that is a part of a strategy to come to terms with our life as a whole. Both our life as a whole as it is present to us right now, through our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, as well, of course, of what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, of the, the, the past, everything that has brought us from birth into, up to this moment, and also for whatever lies ahead in the future. Reminds me of a wonderful statement, uh, well, statement, a phrase in uh, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, where he says, hold to the present through which the future plunges to the past. And what I like about that is uh, its refusal to get drawn into the idea of the present as a kind of punctual now, cut off from everything else. Joyce understands the present as that which we understand through it being the portal through which the future plunges to the past. So if we think of meditation as an overall sensibility rather than practicing a particular technique, it's all about um, opening and expanding our awareness rather than narrowing it down to any fixed point. One of the things that you might have noticed um, in those moments when you get distracted, or let's say those moments in meditation when you suddenly notice that you've been distracted, often when we're distracted, we're not actually aware of being distracted. We're just caught up in whatever the mind is, uh, is doing at that moment, except that we're somehow, we've lost that overall consciousness. We're no longer really present. We're in a sort of, sort of uh, semi-conscious, sort of automatic um, mode of, of being. But when we come back to the present, back to the breath, back to the sounds of the birds and the trees, whatever it might be, we can often rather fruitfully reflect on what goes on when we're distracted. And I think one of the features of distraction is that uh, the mind uh, becomes constricted. It uh, often gets into a very repetitive uh, cycle of the same thought or the same phrase or the same worry. 
It goes round and round and round. And the more we let ourselves get caught up in this circularity, uh, the tighter its hold over us becomes. It can easily um, become obsessive. So the nature of the distracted mind is in very many ways completely in, in opposition to a more meditative sensibility precisely because it, uh, it closes us down. It shuts us down. Often to the point where we're not even really conscious of what's going on. We're just running on automatic pilot. So for example, and I'm, again I'll give examples from my own life, um, I'm in the process at the moment of setting up a, an institute, a Buddhist study institute. And we're at that phase in the um, process where we're having to bring together all kinds of um, elements, uh, banking, um, website development, uh, staff recruitment, Lot, myriad things that are you know, quite tiresome in some ways, but necessary. But that sort of uh, work um, often uh, can generate quite a high degree of anxiety. Is it going to work? How are we going to solve this problem? And those issues uh, frequently beset me when I'm sitting my mind latches on to something I'm worried about in this process and um, gets snagged by it. We spoke yesterday of Mara and the fish hooks and the traps of Mara. You get snagged by a worry about a staff problem or something and it takes you over. It goes round and round and round. You keep thinking about it and the more you think about it, the more it gets magnified, the more you become paralyzed by it, and the more you can even start to feel a kind of physical anxiety in the stomach or in the heart or in the throat. It really does trap you. And so when you notice that, Again, the idea is not to somehow suppress it or to feel that, oh God, I'm a hopeless meditator, I can't do this, but to embrace it, to recognize that that's what your organism is generating in this moment. It's not as though you chose to feel that way, it's happening to you. And it is just as worthy of being embraced, included in your meditative sensibility of your life as a whole, as anything else. In a strange paradoxical sort of way, uh, there are no distractions. Because everything that we label a distraction can also be transformed into another object of awareness we can turn that into something no more distracting than <clears throat> the rooks in the trees, who for some reason are totally quiet today. 
So the practice of meditation is not, therefore, about um, only being able to do it when the conditions are right in your mind, then you can meditate. Uh, that would be easy, but you might have to wait an awful long time. Th this practice is very much about taking whatever state of mind you're in at this moment and opening that up as another aspect of your field of attention. And that, I think, is what the Buddha means by, by parinya, fully knowing. The word pari literally means around. So to know things in the round, which again, I think, is very suggestive of how this practice is about opening our uh, attention, our sphere of awareness, to a point that is always a little bit wider than whatever else is going on at the moment. It's, it's very much about an opening embrace. And I think this is important. Otherwise, if we think, well, to meditate, I've got to focus on my breath. That can be a very useful foreground activity, something that we can come back to, we can anchor ourselves in. But if we uh, think of the meditation as just about doing that, we can perhaps lose sight of how that exercise is part of a wider strategy to embrace the totality of what is going on. Martin often uses the distinction between the foreground and the background. The breath might be in the foreground, but that should not obscure or block out the background, everything else that's going on. I think this idea of embracing as an aspect of meditation also includes um, a, a sharpened awareness to what the Chinese call the great matter. And the great matter is the fact that we've been born, that we grow old, that we get sick, we break down, and we die. And remember that in the legend of the Buddha's life, as a young man, he supposedly encountered sickness, aging, death. And it is that that turned his mind towards an ethical life. It's that that prompted what we call his renunciation, which we spoke of last night. So again, I feel that when we're uh, cultivating attention, we're not just focusing on the breath or the sound or loving-kindness phrases, but we're, also, but we're doing that as a means of coming to terms with our birth and our death. So when we're aware of the breath, we're also aware of the fragility of life itself. Whether we're aware, perhaps not consciously, but subliminally, 
of being here at all, of having been cast into this world. And at that same moment, implicitly realizing that this won't last. That one day we'll breathe out, just as we breathe out now, but we won't breathe in again. So the breath is not just a kind of bellows action in the lungs. It's um, uh, a very crucial uh, indicator of our fragility and our mortality. So again, this is, I think, is an example of how this meditative awareness can open out into something far larger than just the sensation of our breath against our upper lip or in our abdomen. So in a sense, we need to find a balance between the two. And this is what I'd encourage today, to try to keep in mind the bigger picture, the bigger questions, the sensibility that emerges when the mind becomes more still, more quiet, more focused, more clear. It allows us to dukkha parinya, to fully know, to embrace, to comprehend our life in its totality. And this is how the Buddha described it when he was asked what he means by parinya, fully knowing, embracing, he says uh, it means to know uh, the totality of experience. Or in Buddhist technical jargon, the five khanda, the five aggregates, our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our impulses, our inclinations, and our consciousness. It's, a, it's an expansive embrace of whatever is going on. And we find the same, of course, in the classical presentations of the cultivation of mindfulness. As I suspect most of you are, are aware, mindfulness is presented in the discourses of the Buddha as a series of stages that start with the breath, the sensations of the breath as felt in the body, and then a more um, uh, extended awareness of bodily experience. That then turns to attention of our feelings or our feeling tones as the Buddhists call them that spectrum from pleasure to pain from ecstasy to agony that whole tonal range of our emotional uh, experience we then move from there into a much more uh, sensitized attention to our mental processes, our thoughts, um, emotions again, 
uh, are the, the things that, in a sense, obstruct us, our attachments, our fears, our aversions, our self-centeredness, as well, of course, as our, our empathy, our concern, our compassion. That, too, is included. And then the fourth and final phase in the cultivation of mindfulness concerns what the Buddha simply calls Dhamma, which means just all things, everything, the totality of what is occurring in this moment. So again, it's important to understand the process of mindfulness as one that starts with what is, in a way, most immediate to us, our breathing bodies, but expands into an attention to what we hear, see, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, everything. And likewise, I think we need to be careful of uh, this idea that we're beginners and we have to stay with the breath and when after however long it takes, we get good enough to go to the next stage. I think we need to be more fluid, more flexible, to notice how in any given sitting, if our minds are more still and more clear, expand. If in a given sitting we feel very restless, very agitated, keep the attention more focused, say, on the breath. But we don't have to be, uh, in a sense, rigid about this. I think the practice of meditation as a sensibility, as an embracing, um, is also, um, it also involves um, a capacity to, to experiment and a, a capacity to, um, to do what's appropriate given how we are at a given moment. Not to think of this practice within some kind of framework um, in which we will progress slowly from one stage to the next. That might be part of it too. But in terms of what we do on the cushion here and now, try to have an openness that allows a sliding scale of attention. And we might, even though we've set ourselves the task, say, of just attending to the breath, if after a few minutes we find that we're sufficiently still and clear, open it up. Make the background the foreground. See it all as uh, an aspect or a part of embracing our situation in life, embracing our condition as human beings. And experimenting, exploring, uh, testing those waters, as it were. And I think another dimension of this fully knowing is that this is a knowing that's not just about uh, a mental uh, activity or uh, a cognitive act about knowing something. 
in the way that we might, say, come to a better knowledge of uh, mathematics or anatomy. It's not that kind of knowing. It's not a factual knowledge that we're seeking. It's certainly not just a, um, a, a cognitive experience that goes on in our heads, but it's an embodied knowing. And this, I think, is already clear from how the Buddha presents meditation as starting by grounding ourselves in the body. Not only in the physical posture, which I think is a very uh, clear indicator that what we're doing has a lot to do with the fact that we're sitting here or we're walking in a particular way. This is not accidental, but this is, I think, very much of the, of the core of this embrace is that it is an embodied embrace. And in fact, the, um, uh, the texts speak of this as a kind of dwelling. The Buddha describes mindfulness of the breath as, a, um, as an Arya Vihara, a noble dwelling. He calls it a Brahma Vihara, a sacred dwelling, a Tathagata Vihara, a dwelling of the true person. And again, this word Vihara, which has now come to mean monastery, the word literally means a dwelling, where you live. So this points, I think, very much to how meditation in this, in this larger sense is about the way we dwell on earth, the way we dwell um, in our bodies, in our lives, in our communities, in our environments. It's a kind of dwelling. But again, this idea has been kind of lost in favor of you know, quite sophisticated psychological analyses of what meditation is about as a kind of cognitive process. Try to come back to the idea that it's about the way we dwell, we abide, we live on earth. How we dwell in a way that is embodied and environmental. That it's not just about knowing things in an abstract way at all. But it's about coming into relationship with ourselves through our bodies and through our presence in the world of other beings, whether sentient or non-sentient, uh, organic life, the wind, the weather, the building, everything. How do we dwell in this world? How do we um, walk? How do we take one step after another? <clears throat> so I hope that's been helpful. Um, 
I do feel it's important to get outside of the idea that meditation is about um, becoming proficient in a certain set of techniques and to recover something of this rather more embodied, expansive, inclusive uh, coming to terms with our existence as such. So as we, um, as we uh, meditate today, as we sit, as we walk, we go about our different activities, um, try to find um, a balance between the overt uh, choice you're making to say concentrate on the breathing, which for many of us might be a very uh, agreeable, a very effective way of sitting, or whatever other kind of practice you might do, and return constantly to the bigger picture, the overarching uh, framework within which this practice uh, is embedded, is rooted. In other words, going back to the question we looked at last night, you know, why do I meditate? What's it for? What's it about? Maybe at times if you're feeling listless or distracted or bored, just ask yourself that question. You know, why am I sitting here? Why am I doing this? And again, resisting the mind's habit of giving you some clever answer, but listening to that question, listening to it within your body, not necessarily coming up with any answer at all, but being open to the vitality of that question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.